Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back everybody. Absolutely no preamble to this one. We're going to get straight on with telling the story of King Hurler. Let's begin. Entertain for just a moment the idea that you are watching a movie. A big budget Hollywood action blockbuster no less. It's probably got superheroes in because everything does these days. The scene fades in and at the bottom of the screen letters appear rapidly, one at a time, as though being typed out, an effect enhanced by accompanying typewriter sounds. It says, Peterborough, 1127CE, Sunday, February 6th, 1900 hours. And the scene fades fully in from the black, and we've a sweeping aerial shot of a nighttime winter forest below. And there is a noise. At first it's just a roaring cacophony, but as the camera pans lower, closer to its source, individual sounds can be distinguished. The thump of hoofbeats, the snorting of horses, the savage barking of dogs, the cries of men, and, rising above all the rest, the deep, sonorous blasts of hunting horns. The forest below clears and the drone shot drops low enough that we can make out the riders now. We're following them as they gallop through the night at terrific speed. They are black clad, of course, dark against the night. As the camera drops further we can see, in the distance up ahead, the outline of an abbey. Lights are coming on in the windows as candles are lit, as the monks are awakened by the raging din that fills the air. The camera is down and between the riders now, following them along, and we can see now that they're not quite normal men, these. They're horses and dogs neither. All slightly warped, misshapen, but not egregiously so. Just some pervasive sense of wrongness. In their wide mouths, their entirely black eyes, the flicker of shadows at their edges. These are things that might once have been men and horses and hounds and falcons, but were no longer. The clamour precedes them, the thunderous hoofbeats, the bellows of the horns. The inhabitants of the abbey are thrown into a panic as a nocturnal mass of frenzied riders seem poised to descend upon it. Some monks freeze in place, horrified but unable to move, waiting for the punishment they believe is rightly due to fall hard upon them. Others panic and start to flee the building, grabbing what improvised weaponry they can on their way out. But it doesn't really matter. For, at the last moment, the diabolical riders change course, veer off around the building and ride off into the forest beyond it. 
The blasts of the horns and the snatches of barking can be heard by terrified monks for several hours yet. The scene fades to black. The Welsh Borders, 1154 CE, Tuesday, June 15th, brackets, the summer equinox, close brackets, 1200 hours. It's a bright summer's day in a beautiful meadow, not a cloud in the sky. The hazy air is infused with the gentle sounds of insects chirping and birds singing. Scent from flowers wafts in the breeze. And that's all there is one moment. But in the next instant, with some very clever camera trickery maybe, the field is filled with an army. It doesn't enter with a sound. It's just not there one moment and oh so heavily present the next. The horses and the riders, as from before, more clearly visible in the day, recognisable as beasts and men, but as though their proportions were painted slightly wrong, a tint of the uncanny. Behind them this time comes more than that. There are carts with them, and now we can see that not all of the force are warriors. Many carry no weapons at all, simple servants, the occasional woman. Those peaceful meadows are utterly disrupted by the coming of this mass. But this time, the sounds of the riders are not so different from any large group of people and animals on the move. They move not particularly fast. No mad charges. They simply adopt a gentle trot so that the slowest can keep up, with just a few scouts setting off as soon as they materialise into being. This is almost a whole court on the move, as king's courts had done in centuries past, travelling from place to place to dispense justice, to reward good local administrators and to punish bad ones. A necessary part of visible kingship in such times, establishing your physical presence so that it would not be forgotten. But any familiar with the wandering courts of old would have quickly noticed one odd thing here. In addition to the darkness of the eyes and the slivers of shadows that flicked and played across the coats of the horses, that is. They would have noticed the complete absence of pedestrians. Once you spotted it, started looking for them, it was obvious and very strange indeed. Normally a retinue of this size would have a good proportion, if not most people really, on foot. But not here. These were riders. Yes, some of the riders looked poorer and like servants. Slow riders, yes. But riders each and every one, all on very fine horses. Now the country was far less populated back then than it is today, but even so the presence of such a force didn't go unnoticed for long. The sounds from them echoed over hill and dale through the valleys. Those shocked people who saw them first made haste to spread the word. Trumpets and shouts came up from the villagers all around. This was a country that was sadly used to war. For all the beauty of nature, these places were troubled by the worst that humanity had to offer. Long fought over towns and villages, the flashpoint between the various kingdoms of England and Wales, where cruel men forced poorer men to murder. Bandits raided regularly, and the violence was an awful but anticipated part of life. But what this meant was that there was a knowledge of what to do when a hostile force was spotted. There were procedures. 
and though this force was of some most uncommon character, the response was just the same. In the settlements all around, groups of men abandoned any work that they were doing, mustered at agreed positions, were provided with weapons and armour as available and basic substitutes if not. Small bands assembled, met other bands and formed into larger units. And over the course of several hours, this hastily assembled army converged on the eerie, slow-moving mounted troop. Now if you think about supernatural occurrences in almost all stories, very rarely are they met with such a community-wide, well-organised response. You know, whatever it is, a dragon, a vampire, a ghost, what you normally end up with is a couple of guys, at best, quite often only one guy, going out to fight it. Which seems awfully stupid except for maybe within the bounds of the story. So fair play to these people for getting their shit together on this one. If this kind of response could be done more, we'd probably have less stories about dragon slayers. Anyway, the two forces met near the banks of the River Wye, which today forms a boundary between England and Wales, but it was something that was then more in flux, shall we say. The more definitely human troops now outnumbered those of, let's call them the visitors, by some magnitude. This emboldened the men, and though they had no desire to fight this sizeable military force, well, a sizeable military force wandering through your lands wasn't something that could simply be left alone. That was asking for trouble. So they shouted to them, called to them in as many languages as they knew, all kinds of greetings, demands for surrender, questions as to their provenance. In Welsh and in English, in Irish and Norse, in a variety of flavours of French, in Latin and in Cornish, but none elicited a response. Though whether this was because the riders could not understand, or simply because they chose not to respond, was not clear to anyone. A strange sight it must have been. Two armies, one slightly phantasmal, one a hastily assembled group of confused and scared men, trying in vain to shout at them all set under a beautiful summer sky. The strange army made no hostile actions, even silenced their hunting horns, and stopped, as if to listen. But no response could be elicited from them, and the Welshmen became ever more agitated, as they were regarded with weary eyes by beings whose intentions they did not understand, and who seemed in no mood to put their fears at rest. Eventually, when all the attempts to communicate fell flat, the humans did what humans do. The order went out. Halberds and axes were placed at the ready. The ranks of bowmen reached for their arrows. Waited for the final command. Scene fades. As we fade in, those letters appear again at the bottom of the screen. The details they provide are a lot less specific this time, and it appears that our narrative is now shifting back in time over 700 years. Somewhere in Britain, the 5th century CE, Tuesday, 
1500 hours. It was a good day to be king. Now I know what you are thinking. Surely it's always a good day to be king. Doubly so in a pre-industrial society where there's very little wealth and power to go around and almost all there is gets efficiently funnelled right to the top. I mean, it's why men and lions alike, quote, just can't wait to be king, unquote. It's a whole thing. If you don't think it's great being a king, well, try being a peasant, etc, etc. And yes, there is certainly a lot of truth in that. But just as true is that being king was often a genuine chore at this time. Some of the smart folk knew that a couple of rungs down might be a little better. Now, there was no really safe place, mind you, nowhere that life would guarantee to be good, but as king, well, basically, everyone was always trying to kill you. Other kings from other kingdoms were a given. Your advisors, naturally. Your children, of course. All the other members of your family. All the members of your wife's family. And about half your job, give or take, was just trying to put this off as long as you possibly could by making clever decisions until eventually you slipped up and were murdered. And then there's some naive regicide who's so delighted to get the blood splattered crown he doesn't think what he's let himself in for until he has his first bit of poison partridge or whatever and then suddenly gets super paranoid and the cycle begins again. But today had been a good day for King Hurler because he'd left as much of that politics stuff as he could well behind and gone where kings went when they just needed to get away from it all. Hurler was out hunting. Now, hunting was something that kings were expected to do, and it was part of their duties. Their duties of entertaining everyone around them and all that stuff. But the best part about it for Hurler was when the mood was right and when you could skillfully ditch the right people without it seeming like you'd done so on purpose, then there could be such a real escape. It's like that feeling when you're doing something that stops you looking at your phone, you know? Something where you just can't do it when you're driving or cycling or getting intimate with someone. You just have to leave it alone for a little bit of time and then its siren call is gone and it feels so freeing like a great weight has been lifted. The cords you didn't realise had bound you are snapped for those moments of time and you soar freely in the air. No? Just, just me? But such was a good day's hunting for King Hurler. And doubly so right at the current moment because he'd managed in the confusion of the chase to give everyone the slip. And I mean everyone here, including the servants, guards, retainers and whatever. He was completely alone. He could hear their shouts and the blowing of horns somewhere not too far off. He wasn't afraid he'd lost them. But King Hurler just had a few precious minutes of some real me alone time. He looked around the little patch of forest he found himself in and free of distractions of feeling a particular need to get back to the hunt proper, he was able to appreciate the floral, verdant beauty of it in a way he very rarely got time to. The oak trees with their great majestic trunks, the dappled sunlight through the canopy, 
the fawn or satyr-like creature on a huge goat slowly approaching him, the lilacs and whites and yellows of the wildflowers on the ground, the squirrels leaping from tree to... Hang on, go back a couple. Hurler snapped his head round to look. Yes, there was a satyr on a goat, and the creature was approaching him slowly, but definitely going towards him, gently bobbing from side to side on his oversized mount. He was a strange creature indeed, small in stature, a few feet at most, but with an oversized head and a pair of horns so large and majestic as to match that of his steed. But these were only the second most notable protrusion from his head, for a great red beard came down from his chin and covered most of his otherwise naked fawn-skin chest. His thighs turned hairier and shaggier until eventually ending in feet like that of the goat he rode. He didn't look particularly threatening, but Hurler instinctively reached to draw his sword. And at that, the strange little creature dismounted from his goat with an unexpected grace and took a few steps closer towards the mounted king. He addressed him by name. King Hurler, very honoured to meet you. His whole being seemed jovial and polite. I am here to speak to you, one king to another, for I too am a king. A king of no small renown. Not sure if he paused there for a moment to see if Hurler would crack some kind of stature-based joke, but the man didn't, so the satyr continued. I am, in fact, the king of many other kings and queens and peoples too numerous to count. And words come to me of you, King Hurler. You are well regarded by your people. More and more of this land falls under your sway and the people of my domains wish to bid you good tidings. Just a quick interjection. If you're wondering what a satyr is, apparently the American pronunciation is satyr. That is S-A-T-Y-R. But however it's pronounced, what we are talking about is a small humanoid with goat's legs. Often looks a bit like how Pan is represented. That's the creature we're talking about here. And for any of you who are real classical mythology sticklers, I mean the satyrs from Roman mythology and later that look exactly like fauns, as opposed to the classical Greek satyrs, which have human legs and um, another prominent feature. It's the goat-legged ones we're talking about. Hopefully you got that, but I just thought I'd make that clear in any case. Anyway, this satyr king has just given King Hurler a bit of praise. And Hurler was still quite wary, but he felt his breast swell a little with pride. It was true. All the political scheming that had kept him so occupied had been paying off for him. A land of divided kingdoms was rapidly turning into just one. All his key enemies were dead or exiled, and others who had opposed him now numbered amongst his most vocal supporters. He was playing the game well, and this strange creature recognised that. That made him feel kind of good. Now, King Hurler was aware, on some level, of the domains of which this creature spoke. This was a time when everyone knew about them. Not specifically, of course, no understanding of what they were, but they knew that there was another place inhabited 
found in the most remote hills, in the mounds that dotted the plains and in the hidden caves. Those other folk, call them what you will, the elves, the fairies, the Tullowith Teg, inhabited that place known by many names, Anon, Fairyland, Elfland, or simply the Otherworld. Place adjacent to the world of men, but largely hidden from it, the nature of it known only by its inhabitants, accessible only by the magic they worked. And many a story was told of them, told to beggars and to kings and to everyone else in between. And most hoped never to meet them, for most of the stories involving them did not end well. But a few, just a few, had very favourable outcomes indeed. And perhaps King Hurla hoped that was how it would go for him, if he played his cards right. So Hurla accepted the compliments graciously. Uh, thank you and well met, noble king. An honour it is to meet you, replied Hurla politely, as if it was the most normal thing in the world. The fire-bearded satyr continued. Now I know you don't know me, but of all the kings you are the nearest to me in rank and glory, he said, while still managing to imply that a fairly significant gulf existed between the two of them. And because of that, I propose a compact. You see, we both find ourselves in a similar situation with regards our impending nuptials. Hurler, who was listening carefully to every word and who didn't have a wedding planned, looked puzzled, but the Satyr King didn't stop. Instead, he said in a matter-of-fact way, Frankish emissaries will be arriving at your court, well, about now, actually, and proposing that you marry the beautiful, fine-natured and politically advantageous daughter of their king. This has, of course, come completely out of the blue for you, but it is an excellent offer, a union far superior to any of the various schemes for your marriage that you've got planned right now. I know you, King Hurler. But you should be flattered, because this is down to your hard work in creating your reputation. Um. Hurla tried to interject, but the creature went on. So, when you do agree, after some due consideration of course, important to mull these things over, but when you do agree, I propose that you invite me, and whatever company I wish, to your wedding. Do not concern yourself. I give you my word that me and my people will be the most excellent of guests. In return, all I ask is that you observe the most common of courtesies, and attend my wedding in the not-so-distant future. Simple enough. We, as kings of high rank, attend each other's weddings. That's all I ask. King Hurler began to ask a question again, um, but once again the satyr barrelled on. And so the agreement is made, he declared, critically without having given Hurler any chance to respond. I'll see you at the wedding, he said and he remounted his goat, which turned, and the pair fared jetted off into the forest before Hurler could say anything at all. I'll rush over the next bit here. Hurler goes back to his court, and yes, there are Frankish ambassadors there, and they are indeed offering a marriage alliance. And there's no real strings attached. These are straight-up people, the good guys, easy to deal with. They see advantage, Hurler's courtiers see an advantage, Hurler sees an advantage. It all seems so perfect, and that's obvious to anyone. 
Another great coup for this upcoming young king whose stock just seems to rise and rise. Stonks. And if King Hurler had not had his recent encounter, he would see this as an unambiguously great thing. But this is the bit where I really have a deep desire to know what was going through King Hurler's mind. Because he must realise that flat out refusing this wedding invitation is the only way he will avoid falling into whatever weird scheme the satyr king has going on. By the way, I'm going to keep referring to this guy as the satyr king, even though he's not a classical satyr. His role is closer to that of a fairy king or an elf king, but he's kind of different as well, so we're going with satyr king, and I'm sure you can work with that in the bounds of the story. Now, back to looking into Hurler's mind. Did he suspect a trap, something untoward here, but ultimately feel himself backed into a corner? Because he was basically unable politically to turn down the wedding. Whispers would begin at court. So... Did he enter into it eyes open, hoping that whatever trap was being set for him he could disarm later? Or did he, perhaps, buy into it all? Believe that, though it seemed the satyr king had forced him into a deal, it really did only intend good things for him. Had he responded very well to that puff piece and bought it all? Of course it made perfect sense that another world king would want the famous dashing King Hurler at his wedding. It's not in the original story, so we don't know. But I'm going for the former here. King Hurler is not a fool. He suspects that all might not be right. His instincts have taught him that well enough. But turning down an offer as clearly advantageous as this would not only risk future hostilities with the Franks, but would very quickly lead to talk at court. He'd look like he'd lost his mind, and the intrigue he'd so expertly and delicately quelled would flare up again with great ferocity. He'd endanger not only himself, but his whole family and friends and his kingdom. He wonders if the Satyr King knew this, but really it makes no difference if he did or not. There was really only one option that he could take. He'd marry the Frankish princess, beautiful, more than willing and perfectly suited as a political match. And he'd deal with any consequences of whatever the hell was happening with that Satyr as they arose. Hurler accepted the proposal. Now I'd just like to take a small aside to talk about the structure of the story and the changes that I make to it, which I might normally wait for the end, but anyway, I want to tell you that there are basically only two characters in this whole story. Spoilers for a bit. There's King Hurler and there's the Satyr King. And that's it. Maybe there's one other speaking part. But the wives and even the courtiers don't get a look in here. Now if I had made this into a kind of big budget fantasy that I like to imagine almost all my stories being, whilst having no idea of how even people write scripts for TV series these days, do they send them in? Is that, is that a thing? Anyway, no idea. But if it was, I would probably flesh out some backstories for the wives here. Hell, combine their stories with some other legends perhaps. I can see that working quite well. 
Make the wives' stories interesting, at the least make them real people, possibly build up an entire plotline that collapses in a dead end. A trap plotline. I'm quite contrary in that I love it when a Chekhov's gun is left unfired. But importantly, what I'm trying to say here is that in this podcast, I'm not going to be creating those characters. The wives will be just as bland and characterless and, quite frankly, absent as in the original story. In this podcast, sometimes bits get added, tweaked slightly for efficiency, expanded upon and expounded upon. Lots of expounding happens all over the show. But there's so little material to work from here that anything about the wives would have to be wholesale created from scratch. And I'm not generally in the business of doing that. It's like the difference between Pimp My Ride and Scrap Heap Challenge. The story is built unfaithfully out of an original, rather than something constructed totally anew. So all of that hopefully explains why the wives don't have any character. Let's get back to King Hurler and his kingdom, where much has been happening. The big day rolled around surprisingly quickly. Now a wedding as momentous as this was, even by normal standards, a stressful event in the extreme, involving some considerable complicated planning. Sending invites, doing the catering, making sure the feuding guests who you wanted to be able to assassinate each other were sat at a distance that they could oh so sneakily poison each other's drinks, while also making sure you had a clear system for swapping out the drinks proffered by feuding guests who you didn't want to successfully poison each other. If anything went wrong, a particularly off-colour best man joke, a situation involving the mother of the bride and the priest, then the happy nuptials could soon spiral into one big diplomatic instant, and in particularly dire circumstances, war might be declared before the DJ had even got around to playing Mr Brightside. So there's clearly a point where stress levels kind of max out, so I'm not sure whether it will be true to say that in the run-up to this wedding, it was more stress over Hurler because of the whole weird donkey-mounted satyr bargain, or not. But that element of it certainly preyed upon his mind. The satyr was going to attend his wedding, but he'd said he'd be no problem. He promised. What exactly that meant wasn't clear. As surreptitiously as he could, Hurler had his army put on standby for... something... But the other world wasn't really his speciality, or of anyone in the kingdom, or quite possibly anyone in humanity at all. The day started off normally. The Satyr King was nowhere to be seen. Maybe he'd had second thoughts. He hadn't RSVP'd after all. I mean, he couldn't have been sent an invitation, so he couldn't really RSVP, but still, it might mean something. The service went off smoothly. Without a hitch, and with a hitch. This was a relief, and yet Hurler remained tense. He looked around fervently, but everyone looked human. He kept seeing children and doing a double take, but all of them were appropriately beardless, hornless, and with usual legs. As he sat down to the first course of what was to be a sizeable wedding banquet, his new wife probably noticed that he was still not at all at ease. The food was not yet served. Nobles, courtiers and churchmen from both of the United Kingdoms, along with ambassadors and honoured guests from others, all sat awaiting their meals when it happened. 
the satyrs emerged. Huge numbers of them, from, it seemed, every direction. A great commotion went up through the assembled guests, who jumped up in alarm as the small creatures took their place at the tables. Or in cases where there wasn't enough seating, they brought their own tables and chairs and then seated themselves upon those. Hurler rose, ready to deal with this as best he could. But the creatures acted with unearthly speed to make themselves very welcome indeed. Pavilions were pitched in a moment and added to those already assembled, and from them were produced in short order a huge multitude of delights. Goblets, platters, bowls of the finest design, in gold and silver and encrusted with precious gems. They were placed on each and every table. Their value alone was perhaps more than that of half of Hurler's treasury, and they were quickly filled with a sumptuous extravagance of libations and comestibles. Some of the most exquisitely prepared dishes known within those lands, others enticing exotic delights which had rarely, if ever, been seen upon those shores. The smell from it was mouth-watering, and as the bravest and poison-unwearyingest guests took the first taste, they found every dish to be a delight as delectable to the taste buds as to all the other senses. They experienced each bite with the same level of mind-blowing intensity as that rat from Ratatouille, which is a lot. The satyrs moved amongst the guests clad in resplendent finery. No astute chests on display here. Their clothing was the envy of the finest tailors of the Orient, and they wore shining gems and sweet-smelling perfumery to match. It's difficult for me not to imagine this whole procedure happening with a musical number behind it, and it might well have done for they almost certainly brought entertainment, musicians and jugglers and who knows what else, receiving rapturous applause for the shows they put on. There's something a bit umpalumpery about this, but even as those words pass my lips, I realise that demeans what was truly a fine and gracious affair, not so coarse or full of sinister undertones were these. Though there must have been confusion, even fear about the satyrs, they were genuinely a delight, a burden to none in word nor deed, there when you needed them to top up your glass, absent when you didn't. The king's own preparations went unused, and his servants had not a job to do, and once the shock had worn off, I'm sure it was to their greatest satisfaction that not only did his entire staff basically get a free holiday, to add to their other one in the year, they were also attended to magnanimously by the Sato King's people. A few moments into this bustling fairy world activity, the King of the Satyrs came to Hurler, and with a surprisingly Christian choice of words for one such as he, he said, King Hurler, well met. As the Lord is my witness, you can see that as per our compact, I am present at your wedding. King Hurler tried to intervene. Uh, about that compact. The satyr continued without paying him any heed. Now, if there's anything else that you can see that I haven't provided that you think would be appropriate, just let me know. He said this as dishes sweet and savoury that the king had no name for were placed in front of him and wine of the very best quality was poured into his glass. Hurler racked his brains but he couldn't think of anything that was missing except the most ridiculous or trivial and he had a feeling that if he went and said something like well actually I was expecting performing elephants 
then they would simply appear, and further in debt he'd be. So he just shook his head. No, no, thank you, it, it, it's wonderful. Well then, our compact is truly made, and just remember, all you need do is attend my wedding. I'll let you know when it will be, with a bit of time in advance, so you don't need to worry about putting it in your diary just yet. And as per his form, he didn't wait for Hurley's response before saying, Good talk. I'm so happy to be here with you and your lovely new bride. The satyr beamed at them both. Well, it's your wedding day. Enjoy. And he bowed respectfully to Hurler and then rejoined his people. The wedding party continued all night long. Every tune was perfectly performed and fitted the mood just right. The satyrs chose dance floor fillers, peppered at the correct time with less well-known numbers that let everyone top up their glasses and take a privy break. The satyrs didn't leave till the breaking of dawn, and by that time, everyone rather drunkenly agreed that not only was this little goat man, he's my best friend, he's my best friend, I love him. What? Look, his hairy little legs. Oh, that's so funny. He's horny. <laughs> Just a joke we got. I love him. Great guy. Great guy. But friendships forged in alcohol aside, all King Hurler's human guests agreed that his satyr guests had been the absolute highlight of the wedding, making it, well, the best they could ever remember. And not only that, but this proved that the king had connections with the other world. And boy, did that pay off for him. Now, I'm not quite sure how the church might have felt about this, but it wasn't nearly as strong then as it would grow to be in later centuries. And anyway, the churchmen at the wedding had all been very well treated, so they probably coloured their reviews accordingly. All Instagram influencer, quote, they're not paying me to say this, unquote, stuff. Word of all of this spread quickly throughout the kingdom and far beyond, boosting Hurler's already high reputation to positively stratospheric levels. The next year was very good for the king and his new bride. He had a lot to get on with, duty, yes, but all the good bits as well, just living a decent life post this successful wedding, working on producing that all-important heir. Hurler was having the time of his life. But as he did so, once again the practical side of him came out. He didn't become some neurotic, tragic Shakespearean figure, forever focused on the repayment of his debt, failing to live in the now. Nor was he so wrapped up in his life to completely forget about the debt. He lived his fullest, and he made preparations. He knew that when the invite came he could never hope to match the splendour of what had been provided to him but he could get the very best of what his own kingdom could provide. And this he did. Or, you know, ordered it to be done. The king made sure that his whole court was always on the lookout for suitable gifts, the work of the best craftsmen, the unusual artefacts from abroad. He had them searching for gifts in the kind of way you do for a new lover, or someone you want to be a new lover. Someone who's hinted at their specific interest, and now you're thinking... Ooh, if I got that for them, that'd impress them, make them take notice. So you scour websites for something that combines multiple of their interests. That's extra special. Consider contacting someone on Etsy and getting them something custom made. Hmm, is that too much at this stage? Too keen? 
That last bit might apply less to King Hurler. But anyway, he was putting all his effort into it, is what I mean. He wasn't looking out for gifts in the manner of someone in the departure lounge about to fly back and suddenly thinking, oh, I should get something for everyone in the office, and then picking the box of the most generic fudge possible in the most generic box possible, with a cheap postcard hastily stuck to it, in some attempt to localise it that yet somehow only succeeds in making it look even less special and more thoughtless? No, none of that. Only the very best gifts for the Satyr King. And the court provided. Great treasures, weird trinkets, interesting artefacts, beautiful artworks. So, when about a year later, the Satyr rode out of the forest, summoned King Hurler and a suitable retinue to his wedding, Hurler was as ready as he could ever be. There was nothing to put Hurler on edge. The Satyr was friendly, genuinely friendly. He assured King Hurler that yes, he really wanted him there. Such a great king as Hurler should be at the Satyr's king's wedding. That that was all he wanted. There was no game of 3D chess being played here. Hurler was just a great guy to have at a wedding. He also assured him that the gifts the king had gathered would be more than adequate to repay the debt owed. And finally he gave him even more assurances that the journey was to be a short one, perhaps a day's ride from here, for while it was difficult to access, his kingdom in the other world was close by for those who knew the way. For it was, in a way, below this one. Many accounts of the other world collected through the centuries testify to this, that it is a place that is subterranean, or perhaps it's more accurate to say that its entrances looked like the entrances to subterranean places. So, that was it. Hurler packed up, took some of his best and most trusted men with him, along with a good number of servants, left the wife and his newborn son at home, told them he'd be away for a few days, addressed the baby. Look after the kingdom while I'm gone, won't you? And you be good for your mother. But don't worry, daddy'll be back in a jiffy. And he gave them one last kiss each before taking his hat off the hat stand, picking up his briefcase and heading out the door. And so it was that the king of the Britons and all the top male nobility of the land were riding into fairyland. They were taken to a cliff we know not where, a cliff with a cavern in it. Now there was always a cavern in it, that was not new, but usually it wound round and narrowed and branched off into many small passages through which no man could squeeze. But led by the satyr, the horses simply rode on into it and into darkness. Torches were lit up, but they served only to illuminate beasts and riders, and not roof nor walls of the place through which they travelled. While they had been boisterous at first, when they made their descent into that dark place, a reverent hush fell upon the men, and in awed silence they made their way through that vast, unnatural chasm. In not too long a time they came to an area of light. Not the light of the sun or moon, but seemingly of more torches and lanterns than one might consider possible, though the exact source of the illumination always remained unseen. The place was decorated with gold, bronze and silver, up to its lofty heights, and these reflected the wondrous lights back and forth, and the whole place was an opulent palace on an unimaginable scale. To go back to my previous analogy, I'll be adding some massive fluffy dice and some oversized exhaust pipes here. 
To Hurler's men, the wedding was an affair full of many new, unusual, unsettling and exciting experiences. The many and varied denizens of the underworld for just a start. For it was not only the satyrs that the king ruled over, oh no. There were a huge array of different creatures in a vast number of flavours. Some almost entirely human looking, save for the odd pointed ear, void black eye, or hint of a tail or goat's foot. Though even in some of these the proportions varied wildly, some towering above the mortal visitors, others as small as mice, and everything in between. But of the remainder of the guests, while well, some were even more bestial than the satyrs in their nature, things that could have been presumed brute animals were it not for the fact that they were gifted with the power of speech, a power they used most eloquently. Others still were neither human nor beast nor something in between, but a different class of being entirely. Creatures with faces that stared out of the bark of a gnarled tree, twisting limbs of bracken and ivy. And there were ephemeral, translucent things that seemed to have all the substance of the rolling morning mist and yet regarded the guests with curious amusement from their many vaporous eyes. And most mysterious and worst of all, those beings that were so easily overlooked as shadows until they peeled themselves away from the rest of the darkness to stand tall and imposing, a mass of black nothingness that just as easily disappeared back into the shade the men themselves cast. Whatever lip service was paid to the Lord God in the upper realms, there was no such here, and the ceremony such as it was, was to the humans of a most unusual and opaque nature. No doubt the satyr's bride was some nymph clad in a diaphanous dress, but the real details of the ceremony remained just as much a mystery to the humans in attendance as they will have to to you and me. Nevertheless, there is one thing about the other world on which almost all accounts agree that it is a place of revelry and high-energy delights, of music, dance and drink and singing, an enchanted MDMA Red Bull-powered celebration of all the radiance, beauty and sparkle of youth. This was certainly the case, and King Hurler and his men alike joined in the partying with great enthusiasm. A wild time of heady abandon was had by one and all, The gifts they had brought were well received, and the presence of the king and his men seemed genuinely to bring delight to that collection of fairy beings. If perhaps only as novelties. Oh, you're humans, how quaint! And time goes fast when you're having fun, and soon it was all over. King Hurler found himself letting go of a tension he didn't really know he was carrying, breathing a genuine sigh of relief. Though he'd struggled to credit it at first, after nothing untoward happened and everything was complete, it really did seem like the satyr king had just been upfront and genuine from the start. He really did just want to do a wedding swap. Perhaps this was the first in a line of normalised diplomatic relations between the fairy realm and the Britons. Perhaps even better, King Hurler would never see them again. On their leaving, the satyr had more gifts for them additional horses for any man who'd come without them, even giving care that all the servants were given steeds, even the few women. There were mighty hounds and impressive hawks, and all manner of other accoutrements connected with hunting and falconry. 
For wasn't it at the hunt we first met? said the Satyr King, as if it had been an accident. Honestly, this wealth of animals nearly exceeded in value all that Hurler had brought to the ceremony. But the Satyr just didn't seem to reckon such things in human terms, and the courtiers and especially the servants accepted them gladly. Once all of the retinue were mounted on their fine new steeds, the satyr led the party back to the dark cavern. He thanked them all for coming and told them to ride on. And just before he left, he pulled the old, Oh, just one more thing. He presented a small bloodhound to one of the courtiers, a man seemingly picked at random, and he literally placed it into the man's arms atop his horse, and the satyr king addressed them all. One thing. Do not dismount, and this is very important, do not dismount until this dog, he indicated the bloodhound, leaps down from its horse. Okay? Understand? There came some confused nods, but Fairyland worked in an odd way. Great! Well, I'm off then. Thanks again so much. He turned his goat, and off he rode. And Hurlers, hungover, slightly puzzled retinue, lit up their torches and rode back into the darkness, fairy dogs and falcons along with them. It was only a very short journey till they emerged once again into the sunlight, and though there was no sound or movement to indicate it, when the last man passed blinking into the bright warm day, he and all the rest just knew that should they turn around and try to re-enter the passage, they would find merely the usual cavern and its many twisting, narrowing passageways ending in sheer rock. Now they hadn't rode a huge distance from the cliff when they found themselves slightly lost. Now yes, they had almost a day of travel, but it shouldn't be a difficult route, so where exactly they'd gone wrong wasn't clear. There was much head-scratching going on, but they were certainly in fields and farmsteads and even on a road they didn't recognise. They couldn't have gone far off course because the general lay of the land looked right, the hills in the distance and whatnot. Probably some after-effects of the mighty strong drinks the fairies had plied them with. There was a shepherd by the road, who was understandably shocked to see this whole elaborate entourage making their way through his humble pastures. Hurler, showing the common touch, approached the man himself, and gazing down from his horse, asked him which way the court and the queen could be found, giving the queen's name as he did. Which I can't, because her name is not in the story. She's a Frankish princess, let's say she's called Frankie. The shepherd seemed even more surprised now. He looked up at the king, looked around at the retinue, and in a very thick, halting accent, he asked Hurler to repeat himself, to make sure that he understood. Clearly, this man was not from around here. Hurler spoke again, loudly and clearly. Now, he was a Briton, not an Englishman, so I'm going to say that he didn't do this in the patronising, irritating manner of the English abroad, but in a more respectful way understanding this foreigner must be new to the place and was clearly having trouble with the language. This time the shepherd clearly understood, and he just shook his head in wonder. He said in his strong accent, Queen Frankie? No, there isn't any queen of that name. 
For a brief moment, Hurler felt a rage rising. He'd been married a whole year. Everyone in his kingdom should know this now, even this clearly ignorant foreigner. But as the shepherd continued, Hurler's anger was washed away by a cold dread that rose from inside him. The shepherd himself seemed perturbed, as if something awful was occurring to him. I have heard that name. Queen of the Britons, right? Look, I think she was the wife of, um, King Hurl, Hurling, Hurl, Hurling, Hurling, some old king of the Britons, but I don't know a lot about her. Legends say he disappeared into a cliff one day with a fairy? The shepherd trailed off, kept looking around him at these men, their strange wares and armour, and some part of him was already beginning to believe the story he'd been told in his childhood. When did this happen? demanded King Hurler. I don't know, replied the shepherd. Hundreds of years ago, before us Saxons even took over this land. You're Britons, aren't you? asked the shepherd. There aren't many of your lot left now. Realisation sunk in. Hundreds of years had passed. The enormity of it all was too much for Hurler, and he sat back in his saddle, trying to process it in shock. But the men close by responded in a more emotional manner. A commotion spread through the troops like wildfire. There were many a cry of disbelief. Ridiculous! One warrior close to the shepherd wasn't having any of it. He was going to get the truth out of that deluded old fool. He swung his legs over his horse and dismounted. No sooner did the man's feet touch the ground than, without even time for his expression to register it, his entire body crumbled into dust, which scattered in the wind. Then the real uproar began. Gasps of horror, terrified shouting all at once. Hurler shouted, screamed to be heard above it all. The dog! Don't get down before the dog does! A few of us who hadn't seen what had happened to the first man chose the commotion as an opportunity to leap down themselves. And the same fate befell them. Dust. Panic broke out. All eyes turned to the man who held the dog. The dog that sat between horse and rider and the memory of the Satyr King's last instruction was firm in every mind. Drop it! Force it down! came shouts. The panicked man tried to let go of the dog, throw it from the horse. It looked light enough. It wasn't fighting him, even. It should have been easy for him. I can't! I can't! The dog was as immovable as a mountain. It looked up at the man, licked its lips happily showed no inclination to move. The men looked from one to another. Their fairy horses suddenly seemed to them to be different than before, shifting beneath them, growing slightly, becoming weirder. But they daren't leave them, and the pack of fairy hounds that surrounded them began to howl, in a way that was somehow laced with triumph and threat. Their eyes moved from each other to their enchanted beasts, to their king, to the places where their companions who had just jumped down had so recently been. Collective screams of loss for the world they'd known, their fury at being trapped, echoed horribly across the valley.
And that is where we leave King Hurler and his men. Now there is clearly some development that happens off screen here. It goes without saying that the dog never jumps down. But how exactly these still at this stage quite normal men condemned to wander until that damn dog relents how exactly they turn into the raging not entirely human hunter party slash army that we saw at the start of the episode is unclear i mean if this was as simple as they couldn't get down without dying well to take a negative view of the outcome they might simply be a bunch of outlaws aging in the saddle begging food just waiting to fall off and with some of them jumping when things got desperate Eventually they'd all die and disappear from public consciousness. Or there's probably a more hopeful scenario, where they work out how they can usefully integrate themselves into this new Saxon society, despite having to be constantly on their horses. Refugees from another time, who nonetheless overcome the odds and have a good life in the future. But they didn't seem to remain normal enough for either of these scenarios to play out. Now I strongly suspect that all the Satyr's generously gifted hunting gear has some significant role to play in this transformation. But whatever their mechanism, they were so transformed into what became known as the Hurler thing, Hurler's assembly, this furious army, their wild wanderings, rapacious rampages, their mad meanderings, their appearance at times seeming to herald the punishing of wrongdoers, but at others simply with no reason that could be understood. Heard at night and on rare occasions during the day. This wild hunt. The story doesn't quite end there. Firstly, you'll be wanting to understand this, won't you? That's what narrative demands. Why did the Satyr King do this to them? In such an elaborate manner. Did he, even? Was this a genuine error? Did he just not know how time works? But then, if that was the case, why wouldn't the dog get down? What was this all about for him? Surely there are simpler ways if he just wanted to get rid of King Hurler. The audience demands their cathartic release and satisfaction that comes from knowing some explanation of motivation of cause and effect, and there isn't one. Now this is a story that comes down to us from a chronicler who doesn't know these things. He's relating the bits he does and describing real events. This is not a carefully crafted Sid Field free act structure with a neat resolution. The other world is unscrutable, dangerous because of it. And sometimes, it seems, good people are doomed to wander the earth as an army of damned semi-demonic huntsmen and we do not know why. But it happens. I'd say the moral is don't mess with the fairies, but at no point of this story does it really seem like Hurler had much of a choice and his people even less so. This was just how the world works. We have one tiny bit of unfinished business though. You might remember at the start of the episode we ended on a confrontation. I'll refresh your mind a bit. It was noon on June 15th in 1154, and somewhere in the borders, Welsh militias from several towns had gathered together and they were confronting what we now know to be King Hurler and his huntsmen. Somewhere in that party there was a dog on a horse that wasn't jumping down. Maybe, deep inside the creature that he had become, the man holding the dog still willed the beast to leap. It did not. 
The brave band of human Welshmen had tried communicating to no avail. The creatures of the Hurlifing didn't seem to want to talk. No one was even sure if they could talk. So the men who had been trying to negotiate were called back. The militiamen took up their positions. They had no idea how a fight against this force would go, but they wouldn't let their lands be ravaged by supernatural terror without giving it at least some resistance. They would do what was needed. Archers form up, came the cry. Bowstrings were drawn back. And at that, Hurler's army moved. Swiftly, their horses took off at a gallop, pulling their carts of fairy gifts behind them, and the hounds rushed forward too. There were gasps and shouts of disbelief from the Welsh soldiery. A few archers let loose their arrows regardless, and they landed harmlessly on the ground. But most of the archers, like the rest of the men, stood open-mouthed, astounded. For that afternoon, Hurler's army didn't charge at them but the huntsmen instead rode their horses into the sky and then, in one instant, disappeared. Writing in the 1190s, some 50 years or so after the hunt had disappeared, Chronicler Walter Mapp noted that the confrontation on the borders was the last time they had ever been seen. But in the 800 years since then, ferocious wild armies have been seen right across the lands. Some may be led by King Hurler, but some have others at their head. The demonic huntswoman, the Martinos, by Gwyn Apneve, by King Arthur, by Francis Drake, and by Hearn the Hunter. And there's no reason they couldn't have been led by all of these other folk trapped as Hurler was. Now what happened to Hurler eventually is a mystery, but if you're ever out late at night and happen to catch the distant sounds of a hunting horn and the baying of hounds, hurry to a place of safety, home or failing that I recommend a cosy pub with a warm fire, and huddle well away from the sounds of howling and hooves and horns. Okay everybody, I hope you enjoyed that strange little moralless tale. Now a bit of discussion. This is probably the episode that I've done the most research around yet, though I'm not really sure that's going to come across in this discussion section because it's difficult to make everything I've read relevant. The reason I ended up doing this is just because of how widespread, geographically and temporally, and much written about are the stories that are lumped under the heading Wild Hunt. They are a big mainstay of European folklore. Hell, even if we just state Wales alone, there's a good number of stories, one of which has a female leader of the hunt, which I'm definitely doing as a Patreon episode. But let's start, first of all, with the one and only source for this story. That source is Walter Mapp and his work, Denugus Curialium, which I am definitely pronouncing wrong. That means courtier's trifles, and it was a work that was written in the late 12th century. Walter Mapp was the source of one of the earliest stories on the podcast as well, the very strange shoemaker of Constantinople, and I think that one is more bonkers than this one, which is relatively normal by comparison. 
Now, Walter Mapp was a churchman and a courtier of some reasonably high standing. He served in the court of King Henry II and seems to have come from the borders of Wales, probably from Hereford, though his ancestry seems likely, though not 100% definitively, to be Norman British. Now, his courtier's trifles was a work of various components. It's a bit of a gossip magazine, it's a bit of a potted history of recent events, a bit of an autobiography. But for our purposes, the most important bit was the telling of fantastical tales, some of which were old myths, like Greek myths and the like, but where he stands out is in his collection of more unusual, more modern stories that might have come from the oral tradition, many of which are told straightforwardly as if they are true. And in that way, they're more like Fortiana than anything else. There's a few other chroniclers who do much the same at around this time, Gerald of Wales, Gervais of Tilbury, and William of Newborough, for instance. Somehow Walter Mapp is the only one who's not. Now, the collected accounts of these people give some insights into medieval legends and, well, stories of things that were actually happening, apparently, that would later become mainstays of folklore. For instance, we have tales of revenants, of fairies, and in this case, of the Wild Hunt. If you're interested a bit more in Walter Mapp, there's an article about him and the Nugis Curialium on the website. Now, Walter Mapp includes two stories about what he calls the Hurler thing. The Hurler thing is the name he uses for a supernatural group of riders, never referring to them as the Wild Hunt, which is a term that only comes into use much later. I've included elements of both his stories here. But the thing is that his descriptions of this Hurler thing are actually contradictory between the two stories. I've made the tales more consistent so it fits together as a coherent narrative. Map's longest story is the one about King Hurler meeting the satyr, but this story kind of just finishes with King Hurler's people on their horses, unable to get down, and with no real explanation of how they become the weirder, wandering Hurler thing. Now in the second story later on in the book, Walter Mapp talks about the Hurler thing again and talks about them coming to the Welsh borders. That's that whole confrontation with the resistance, the bit where they go into the sky and disappear. But at that point, the Hurler thing he's describing, even though he says it's related to the previous one, doesn't seem to be. Because, well, for a start, there are people on foot and there are also dead people. And he gives no explanation of how that's meant to tie back. Now, this is much more similar to other accounts of what is known as the Hurler thing at this time. Just to make things even more confusing to you, but to be completely upfront about what I've done, I also included at the very start of this episode an account of the appearance of strange huntsmen around Peterborough Abbey. This was recorded in an entirely separate account, the Anglo-Saxon Peterborough Chronicle, and is said to have happened in 1127. Though it's not at any point related to King Hurler, it kind of fits in with this and gives a contemporary-ish idea of what a hunt like this might have looked like. So, to make today's episode, there were three stories, two of which came from Walter Mapp. But I only really want to talk, first of all, about the main story, that of King Hurler. Now, I didn't make many changes to this one. I added a bit, as I always do. But I will flag that if you've ever encountered this story before, you'll have found that usually the description of the Otherworld King is either a dwarf, or if it's translated even more literally from the Latin, a pygmy. Now, neither of those terms seemed right to me. Both the terms dwarf and pygmy carry lots of modern baggage. 
which doesn't really seem applicable and doesn't create the right image of the creature. However, more importantly than that, the fact is that in the story, the king is described as having goat's legs and looking like Pan. He isn't said directly to have horns, but I just threw that in at some point and it stuck. The point is that general culture's perception of what a satyr is now is much closer to the description of the creature in the story than our general culture's perception of what a dwarf or a pygmy is. So I kind of thought, well, this makes a hell of a lot of sense. Come at me in the comments on the episode page of the website if you're a Latin translation purist. Now, this story of King Hurler is completely unique to this document. This is the origin of it. Any other telling of it comes straight from here. And when it comes to other medieval stories about the Hurler thing, Professor Ronald Hutton, who has studied these in some depth, calls this story, quote, totally anomalous, unquote in terms of how it just isn't like any of the other tales. So the term Herlething is one of many used at this time, which sound kind of similar. You've got Heliquin's army, you've got the Herlewain, you've got the Familia Herquini. These are all names that are used across Europe in various medieval texts, describing processions in the night, most commonly consisting not of riders, but of dead people. These stories show quite a lot of variation. Sometimes the processions were made up of dead sinners who were going to atone. At sometimes demons would accompany them, maybe punishing them for their deeds. And very occasionally, and most rarely of all, you'd get descriptions of a hunting party, sometimes led by a figure like King Hurler, but sometimes not. It seems that this term, Heliquin or Hurlerwain or whatever else it might be, was in use for a long time before it got written down. And by the time it was written down, nobody knows what it originally meant, though there are, of course, lots of theories. And you might think, hang on, you've just told us where this comes from. It's King Hurler's Assembly or King Hurler's Army or something like that. But the thing is, there's no record of a King Hurler anywhere apart from literally this story. So what seems to have happened is that somebody took a term with which they were familiar Herlefingai, or one of the equivalents, meaning armies or processions of the dead at night, and then they worked backwards from that word that they didn't understand to assume that it meant Hurler's army, and therefore, in that process, created this figure of King Hurler. What they then probably did is either invent the story we've just heard wholesale, or more likely, change an existing story to make that into the origin of the Herlefing. Probably. The Hurler thing or similar processions are occasionally, very occasionally, said to be led by figures, but when that is the case, they're not typically King Hurler. A later account by a few decades mentions King Arthur as the leader, for instance. This repurposing of other mythological figures as connected to these processions is something that then continues for the next many hundreds of years, and with King Hurler never again mentioned. So, I keep saying the Hurler thing, and you're thinking, why don't you just call it the Wild Hunt? Well, I think I need to now turn to the general concept of the Wild Hunt. Odds on, you knew this term before listening to this episode. 
It's very widely known and very widely used today. It crops up in popular culture all over the place, being a fantasy favourite. The Witcher is perhaps the most famous example, of course, though I first encountered it in the children's book The Wild Hunt of Hagworthy, which combines it with some different English folklore traditions. I'm far too removed from that book to genuinely recommend it. Reviews online seem to suggest it's okay, but it had a real exciting, terrifying impact on me when I read it as a child. So the wild hunt looms large in our culture, but what is it now and what was it historically? Well, that's a bit of a story. Let's start with the Wikipedia definition. Quote, The wild hunt is a folklore motif that occurs in the folklore of various northern European cultures. Wild hunts typically involve a chase led by a mythological figure escorted by a ghostly or supernatural group of hunters engaged in pursuit. The leader of the hunt is often a named figure associated with Odin in Germanic legends, but may variously be a historical or legendary figure like Theodoric the Great. And then there's this huge list of figures which reads a bit like a who's who of European mythology. Or an unidentified lost soul or spirit, either male or female. The hunters are generally the souls of the dead or ghostly dogs, sometimes fairies, valkyries or elves. Unquote. Wikipedia does then go on to say a bit later that the concept was developed by Jacob Grimm in 1835, which is a reasonably accurate portrayal of the wild hunt as it is seen today. But reading this, you could be forgiven for thinking that this kind of wild hunt has existed in European folklore for a very long time. And if you read on and find out that the hunt in this form is theorised to have pagan pre-Christian origins, then that impression will be made all the more so. But it seems like it's relatively recent in this exact form, and it was Jacob Grimm writing about it that really set it in, well, kind of a cultural concrete, making this the version of the Wild Hunt legend that would continue. While previous versions in different places differed rather substantially, so much so that it doesn't really seem to be accurate to say that they're all part of one tradition. For instance, in the many stories about parades of the dead, they were more like ghosts atoning for their sins. They weren't a hunt in any way at all. Even on those occasional times that they did have a leader of sorts, there was no hunting aspect to them. They might be angry, they might be noisy, but they are ghosts who are repenting or atoning or being punished. Now, quite separately from that, you've got stories of huntsmen and occasionally hunt women with dogs who are somehow damned, but generally they don't have a hunting party with them. In fact, this is a very common motif. Many of the other variations from England, those featuring Dando, for instance, or some of the Scandinavian tales featuring Odin hunting, just have a single hunter. They might be cursed, they might be a mythological figure, but there's no element of the dead in that story at all, and there's only the one of them. I'm just going to mention here, as we're vaguely in this area, you might have heard of Hearn the Hunter as the leader of the English hunt. And that, well, I'm not going to say it's wrong exactly. It certainly doesn't exist before Grimm says it. He's the only one who ascribes Hearn the Hunter to the wild hunt. There's no pre-existing folklore that does so. Since then, yes indeed, Hearn has become associated with the Wild Hunt, but previously he was just a minor ghost character in a Shakespeare play. The upshot of all of this is that often people talk about all these old stories as one, 
while they're really quite different and none of them quite match up exactly to the modern version of the Wild Hunt. Now, I think King Hurler fits into this in an interesting way, but I'm first of all going to turn back to Ronald Hutton here. He says that the Wild Hunt, as understood now, is a combination of three different older mythological components. One, a procession of female spirits. Two, a lone spectral huntsman, often demonic or accompanied by demonic hounds. And three, a procession of human dead, often noisy and tumultuous and usually consisting of those who have died prematurely and violently. The unified phenomenon, the Wild Hunt, seems to be something largely created in the 19th century, tying many different folk tales of this kind together into one coherent whole, when they weren't really before then. Now I have to disagree with, or less dramatically make a slight corollary to Ronald Hutton here, in that clearly there were the occasional older story about hunters, plural, as in this story of King Hurler. Though King Hurler's band aren't really like the Wild Hunt in many ways. Yes, they're hunters, but they're not hunting for anything, and they're certainly not dead. I find it kind of interesting when you have this 800-year-old story that predates the more modern conception of the Wild Hunt, doesn't really inform it, the King Hurler story didn't form its development, but has some similarities with the much later Wild Hunt story, despite the difference in time. Not a coincidence exactly, but just interesting in how these ideas can come around again, and not maybe in the strict linear path that you might expect stories to develop. And moving on from the story of King Hurler, there are also accounts of lots of other folklore and folk legends and phenomenon, which are often included in this category of the Wild Hunt, but have a different purpose than any of the ones we've mentioned so far. For instance, there are legends told of leaderless hordes of souls that act like a mass of birds that then sweep people up in them. There are other tales that are dramatic stories about thunderstorms or are explaining noises in the night. Uh, the sound of migrating geese is one of the strangest ones. I've included on the website a list of UK and Ireland-based folklore which has been categorised as the Wild Hunt at some time or another, if you're interested. Anyway, there are books that could be written and have been written about this stuff, so hopefully I've given you a bit of a bare bones about the Wild Hunt and about how King Hurler's story fits into it, or in fact doesn't. But turning back specifically to the King Hurler story, I want to look at it from another perspective as well, because it fits into a different tradition much better in some ways, and that is the tradition of the Overworld, of Fairyland, etc because this is a story which, at its core, is about the crazy stuff that happens when you encounter the Overworld, about how unpredictable, dangerous and capricious it is. This concept of an Overworld is central in Irish mythology. It crops up very frequently in Welsh mythology and later folklore, which I mentioned because of Walter Mapp's own Welsh origins and therefore where this tale might have come from, but it also appears all across Northern European folklore in general, there is this idea that there is another world that's kind of near to us but separated from us magically and it's at the very edges of civilization. It's, it's under us, you can get to it through caves, maybe in forests on occasion, on islands, in ancient barrows and on the top of remote mountains. And also associated with that, not always the case, but often time passes differently there. We've seen that on the podcast already in the tale of Thomas the Rhymer. 
Now, within this otherworld tradition, King Hurler is an unusual, but not an exceptional tale, in which you basically age all at once when you return, which is what I take the turning to dust to be, though it's not explicit in the text. In most cases where people come back, they just have to kind of live in the future. However, this exact motif, up to and including falling off the horse, aging you instantly, does crop up in one very famous Irish legend about the Irish overworld, Tir Nanog. So I don't think it's ridiculous to claim that there is quite a definite link between that legend of O'Sheen and this story. All of which adds to my general theory that King Hurler was adapted by someone to make it explicitly about explaining this other tradition of the Hurler thing. I'm going to end this section with this quote from William Hand Brown, writing in 1910. He says, when writing about King Hurler, quote, I think we have a genuine Welsh folktale of high antiquity. Its consequence and absence of any moral lesson are very significant. In all other legends of the wild hunt that I have read, the doom is a punishment inflicted for ruthlessness or blood guiltiness or violation of the ordinances of the church. But here there is no intimation that Hurler had been guilty of anything. In Christian times, if a man was given over to the powers of darkness, it was because he had incurred the wrath of God. In earlier pagan times, the powers of the overworld neither punished nor rewarded. Their curses and their blessings were alike arbitrary. Unquote. Now, as you know by now, I'm generally very sceptical of any claims that stories go back all the way to a pagan past. Unless there's a very firm link in the literature like to Greek and Roman legends that we know people were reading. Very rarely does that seem to be supported by the evidence. So when I read this statement, I was quite sceptical about it. However, as I've researched more and more about this story and found out how different it is from others, how it relates to the other world, I think I've warmed to it quite a lot. And yes, it is quite possible that this really is a reworking of a very old story indeed. Okay, that's probably enough now. I haven't talked about other stories where rulers meet dwarves, which is a common trope in some Breton, Welsh and Arthurian French literature. And I also haven't talked about how Walter Mapp goes on to decry the court of Henry II by saying that after King Hurler's army disappeared, they passed on their bad courtly behaviour to the human court somehow. Though I've included some quotes about it on the website if you wanted to read that there. Okay, that's your lot on the tale. Can I get a record scratch sound here? Or that was the lot. That was where this discussion of the origin story of King Hurler ended. This episode was recorded, edited, the website entries were written, it was even put up ready to release, all that good stuff, when I finally got my hands on a book I'd been after on this topic for a while, written in 2017 by one Joshua Byron Smith, a professor at the University of Arkansas, which deals specifically with this story. And, gentle listener, the reason I'm telling you this is because, unlike all the other people who have written on this story, the very well-informed Professor Smith has a completely different interpretation. I know this may not interest all of you, I've been talking for a while now, but I do try my best to get the facts correct when I make this podcast. There's two elements to this, really, storytelling and research into the origin of the tales, and I want to do well in both. Sometimes I've failed, but I really do try. So I feel that I should go over this new research with you because it is radically different, so that you don't leave this episode with an interpretation of the story that may be wholly incorrect. 
Now, I am not qualified to judge the accuracy of Professor Smith's interpretation versus the others I've read, but I do tend to favour more modern scholarship over older scholarship, because I assume that in general there's a lot more debate that's gone on, a lot more information that's come to light that has fed into any more recent findings. Now, of course, that's not a strict rule, but it does seem possible that the more recent take is the more accurate one. So, in short, Professor Smith says that the story of King Hurler was pretty much written wholesale by Walter Mapp. It is not a reworking of an older Welsh legend. Now, I did posit this as a possibility earlier, but I gave it rather short shrift, so I'd like to give it much more attention now. In Smith's conception, the roving bands of Hurlething do definitely exist in earlier folklore, but this whole tale is a literary creation of maps which combines three distinct elements. Element one is the pre-existing idea of the Hurlething, which was known in a number of places in Europe by different names, as we've discussed. Element two is the big bit that I've missed, which is a very biting and particular satire of Henry II's court. Aspects of this story, which I and many other scholars had taken as being without reason, are in fact rather direct and pointed satires of contemporary issues. I mentioned very briefly at the end of the other discussion section about how after the story, Map compares the court of King Henry II to that of King Hurler. Now this comparison as written didn't seem to work very well for me. When I wrote this up on the website originally, I called the comparison a bit of a stretch. But it seems that that is because I didn't understand nuances about it. The King Hurler story in its entirety, Smith says, satirises aspects of Henry II's court of which Map heavily disapproved. The time it spent inside at night, Henry's marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine, a French noblewoman, and above all, Henry's love of hunting. On this last point, particularly, Smith says that the story of the Hurlething has been made to be more about hunting to emphasise precisely this point. So that aspect I referred to of the story fitting well with the hunt aspect of the modern wild hunt may come directly from Walter Mapp's desire to satirise. So you've got the Hurlething element and you've got the satire. Element three that Smith claims Mapp uses is the inclusion of motifs in the story to give it a Welsh setting. Aspects of the story that suggest to me it has an older provenance are actually inserted specifically to give it that impression, to give it British heritage, which was fashionable at the time. Such elements as the inclusion of the dwarf and the overworld connection. Quote, Its Celtic air largely results from Walter's own imagination. Unquote. Now, Smith is using this point as part of his wider argument about all of this being done because Walter Mapp wanted to fit the story into the body of texts which are called the Matter of Britain. But for getting to the heart of this tale, it's less necessary to understand why he did it than the fact that he quite likely did so. Quote, Walter has radically transformed the tale of Hurlething to create a rhetorically unified story with a specific aim. One of the results of this radical transformation is that the revised tale appears to be a genuine piece of Celtic folklore or literature. Unquote. And Smith is very firmly trying to nail down the coffin of there being any chance of this being a real folktale 
repurposed. He says, quote, Perhaps Walter loosely based Hurley's journey to the other world on a specific Welsh tale he knew. But this systematic practice of drastic revision and the fact that nothing in the revised tale is without purpose should call into question any desire to see this tale as Celtic in the traditional conservative sense, especially the sense used by folklorists. Indeed, such excellent use is made of the so-called Celtic material in the story that Walter either stumbled across a ready-made Celtic story perfect for his satiric purposes, or, as is almost certainly the case, he crafted a tale using his knowledge of Celtic motifs. Unquote. Pretty damning stuff there. So there we go. This was not an old folk tale at all. Turns out to be a piece of courtly satire given a Welsh gloss. It turns out that when I said I was sceptical before about the story's earlier origins, well, I should have kept to that scepticism. Lesson learned, I'll never do it again. And hilariously, to top all of this off, Professor Smith says that rather than the riders disappearing into the air at the end, like in every other translation, that if translated correctly, Map intends that the riders of King Hurler's army are drowned by the Welsh in the River Wye. This is kind of a satiric take on the idea of a returning hero from the past being murdered by his own people. That is a far better end to the story, and I'm really sorry I didn't tell you that one. Okay, if somehow you're still here listening, thank you very much for that. This has now definitely been the longest discussion section and the most haphazard. That's the end of the inserted bit. Back onto the pre recorded housekeeping. Record scratch out. Kind of want to go and write a book on this stuff, but no wealthy patron has yet presented themselves to me. If you know anyone, then uh, let me know. As always, thank you to everyone who has left kind reviews, and thank you so much to my patrons, uh, the real ones on Patreon, not the mythical wealthy one who wants me to be a living writer. Thank you to those patrons who will be getting another episode very soon. As always, you can sign up for the Patreon yourself. You only ever pay when there's a new members episode. There are five now you can go listen to, and I'm cracking on with another one straight after releasing this episode. Many thanks to Sean and Rochelle, who have signed up since the last episode. A reminder that there's pictures, links and sources on the episode page on the website, and a little overview of Walter Map is linked from there as well. As always, if you want to help me out, Patreon aside, reviews, sharing the podcast, sharing posts I make on social media are the best ways to help me out. I've definitely dropped in search engine ranking because of the name change, and sharing episodes will help fix that. That's the lot, thank you very much. Next episode will be out by the end of April and is going to be a bit of a medley with a few different stories from Irish fairy lore. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members episodes. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Bye.